I should like to call your attention this evening to the words which are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Luke, in the third chapter and the first two verses. The first two verses in the third chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip the tetrarch of Iturea, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, Caiaphas, Annas and Caiaphas, being the high priests, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, we've been engaged for a number of Sunday evenings in considering the message of the Bible to the world, to the world today, to the modern men, to men as he is in his predicament this evening. In a sense, we have, of course, been considering what you may call the history of redemption, or the drama of redemption. And we have been doing so in order to show that the Bible, far from being what so many think it is today, namely an old book, which, of course, because of certain traditional associations, has its interest and its charm and its fascination, but which, because of its age and its antiquity, is quite irrelevant to the modern men and to the modern world, and has really nothing to say to us which is of any value at the present time. Our whole endeavor has been to show that the Bible, on the contrary, is the most up-to-date book in the world, because it is the only book that really has an insight into the modern situation. Now, that last hymn has been putting it very well again, that uh, in spite of what God has done, that men is still at war with men. The history of the last 2,000 years has been almost identical with the history of the 4,000 years that went before that. In working our way through the Old Testament, we have seen that constantly, that the situation remains the same. And of course, it is of the very essence of the biblical message to say that the situation still remains the same. That we are all misled by the superficialities and misled to such an extent that we fail to see that the problem of men is an unchanging problem that it has continued and persisted throughout the long history of civilization. And we have been saying that according to the Bible, the real trouble with men, and in a sense his only trouble, is this, that he does not listen to the word of God. Now, let me hurriedly summarize and recapitulate again, because this history is of so vital importance to us. This is the entire message of the Bible. Here it is. God makes men. He makes him perfect. He sets him in a place called paradise. And there was men in communion with God, listening to the voice of God who spoke to him, obeying God, and living a life of perfect bliss. But alas, he was foolish enough to listen to the other suggestion, which was made to him by the devil, the great antagonist of God. And you remember that the form the devil's temptation took was this, was to get men to query and to question 
the word of God. Yea, hath God said, says the devil. In other words, he puts up a query about the truth of the word of God, the fairness of it, the love of it, and so on. And men, in his folly, listen to the, to the temptation, to the suggestion, and he rejected the word of God. He believed that God was really against him, that he had it in him to be a God himself, if he were but given a chance. And he exalted himself and pitted himself and his little puny mind against God, and thereby fell. Fell into misery, fell into shame, became the slave of the devil, lost his freedom. And instead of enjoying the fruits of the garden, he begins to have to work and to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. And thorns and thistles appear for the first time. Man is aware of conflict and antagonism everywhere. There it is. It all happened, you see, at the very beginning, the moment men refused to listen to the word of God. And the story is that ever since then, man has remained like that. He fell and he's remained fallen. And then, of course, we have the further history which just comes to this. That in spite of this unspeakable folly on the part of men, God didn't turn his back upon him. God came into the garden in the cool of the evening. And men heard the voice of God speaking. He was terrified. He thought that the pronouncement would undoubtedly be made at once that he was to be put to death. And he went and hid himself. But God called him out. And having exposed his sin to him and having told him that it must be punished and would be punished, God nevertheless added that gracious promise that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. And there you have the beginning of a new history. So that I can summarize it all up by putting it like this. From that point onwards, there have been two histories in this world. There has been the history of man himself, man in sin. And on the other hand, there has been this history that God has been producing. That God has been introducing. You see, he starts there at the very beginning by indicating that he has a plan for the salvation of the world but that it is going to be opposed, it's going to be fought tooth and nail by men in sin. There are two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and there is going to be enmity between them. God said it at the very beginning. Now, the Bible is, in a sense, nothing but the record of the strife and the conflict between these two seeds. And we've been following the story. We've been following it in order to show this. That in spite of every chance and opportunity that God gave to men, men just would not take it. In spite of having brought this ruin upon himself, he didn't learn the lesson. He didn't realize the one thing to do was to go back to God and to be right with God. No sin multiplied. And so much so, it became so impossible that God decided to destroy the ancient world in the flood and did so. He saved a remnant, eight people only. And again, there's another start for mankind. But did men learn the lesson? Again, he didn't. Again, he exalted himself, set himself up, wanted to make a great name for himself. 
built his city, built his tower of Babel, and again God visited him in punishment. Now God had been giving men remarkable opportunities all that long time, but man, you see, wouldn't take it. And remember all that history which I've summarized in a few sentences took 2,000 years. And then God began taking very special action. He called the men of the name of Abram and drew him out of his country, out of paganism, and brought him into a country of his own choice, the land of Canaan. There is the beginning of a new race. God now, having given men this, these opportunities in the way that I've indicated, is now going to do a new thing. In the furtherance of this plan of his, of the seed of the woman that's going to bruise the serpent's head, he produces a new nation, a people for himself, through whom he'll be able to speak to the whole world, because he's going to set them apart, he's going to bless them, and so on. The call of Abram, the possibility of the new life, the new race, the new people. But you remember that we saw that God had found it necessary to give even to this new race a law. God spake on Mount Sinai, and the people heard the voice, and they saw the, the lightning and heard the thunder, the giving of the law, and all the great message of the law of God to men, that they must keep in this right relationship to him. They must know exactly what he wants, and they must obey him. But again they failed, though they thought they could succeed. So God introduced the tabernacle and all its great message and its teaching, telling men how without a sacrifice for sin, a communion was impossible. And all that great message there of the ceremonial, the ceremonial law, and all that it has to tell us about the absolute need of remission of sins, and that without shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. And then, we saw the other great thing which God did under that old dispensation was to send his prophets. We took a typical illustration in the first of the series called Samuel, last Sunday evening. Well, now there's your Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets, speaking, addressing the people, bringing the word of God. And there was that mighty succession of prophets who came one after another. You can read their books in this Old Testament. And they all say the same thing. They expose sin. They denounce the sin of the people. They call the people back to God in repentance. And they show them that their only hope lies in the action which God is going to take. But... You can't read your Old Testament without feeling and without finding that it all, in a sense, leaves the situation where it was. Look at those children of Israel, in spite of having the law and the oracles of God and their tabernacle and their temple and all these arrangements which God had made for them, in spite of having that mighty succession of preachers speaking to them directly with the voice of God, as it were, Look at their story. Look at their miserable life. Look at them in sin and shame and degradation and unhappiness. Look at the people of God being defeated by other enemies, carried away into captivity into various countries. What a wretched story it is. But there are the facts. 
What then is the great lesson of the Old Testament? Well, it is that man in sin is hopeless. That though you give him chance after chance and opportunity after opportunity, he makes nothing of it. He cannot. He's bound, he's fettered. As the Apostle Paul puts it, even though with his mind he may seem to delight in the law of God, there's another law in his members dragging him down, rendering him incapable of keeping the law of God. And so, in spite of all that God did, there I say, you see this picture of failure and of misery. And yet, you know, that isn't the only thing you learn as you look at the Old Testament and extract its great message. What you really see is this, isn't it? That in spite of the recalcitrance and the failure of men, in spite of all this miserable story of men appearing to get better and then lapsing back again into failure, God is still there and God is still controlling and God is still overruling. You go through the story and you'll see it everywhere. These people of God, they get into trouble and you'd think, well, that's at last the end of the story. How often did that seem to happen to them? You would have thought that when they were there in Egypt under the pharaohs, that really the end of the story had come. How can people make bricks without straw? What hope is there for a race and its perpetuation when the very midwives have been given instructions to kill all the males that are born? It seems the end, and it would have been the end, were it not that God intervened. That's the story, you see, the misery, the wretchedness, the failure of the children of Israel, but God coming down, God breaking in, it's everywhere. Oh, and it is the most thrilling Story in the world. I see it all epitomized, as it were, and summarized in the story of the real call of Moses, who had to flee from Egypt, you remember? And there he is in the land of Midian, and he's become a shepherd, a man with all his talent and ability, whiling away his time, as it were, as a shepherd, and doing it for 40 years. A wasted life, you'd think. And probably had given up all hope. Had almost forgotten his own people in the land of Egypt, though he may have occasionally have thought about them. But what can one do? Who is he to stand up against the might of the pharaohs? What can he do at any rate in this strange land? And there he goes one afternoon to lead his sheep, as we are told, to the backside of the mountain, expecting nothing at all, when suddenly he's staggered and amazed and arrested by the sight of a burning bush and the voice of God speaking unto him out of the midst of the burning bush and indicating him to him the way of deliverance and of salvation. God said, Moses, I am come down. I have seen the misery of my people and I have come down to rescue them and to redeem them. That's it. And it goes on. Look at these kings, how hopeless they seem at times. God raises them. Look at the whole nation, carried away into captivity. You say, well, very well, that is the end. No, it isn't. Though they're in the great power of Babylon, which was second to none at that time and seemed to have everything that a nation could desire, you'd have thought that they were absolutely hopeless. But they were not. God 
can even overrule and control the mind and the thought of a pagan and a heathen king and potentate, and he can even use him as his instrument, as his servant. I have raised up Cyrus, says the Lord, and he sends a remnant back to Jerusalem. Now, I think you must agree that that is the great story of the Old Testament. The abject failure of men in sin, God intervening, the two histories, the history of man, the history of God's salvation. The old story of the seed of the woman being perpetuated, the nation kept going for God's great end and object and purpose. And there you come to the book of the prophet Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, and then there's a sudden stop. And then for 400 years, there doesn't seem to be a single word from God. One of the prophets, you know, had prophesied that because of the sin of the people, a famine would come. He says, not a famine of bread, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. A much more terrible thing. And there was such a famine for 400 long years. God seemed to stop speaking. No word came at all from Malachi. 400 years dead silence. God, as it were, has ceased to be interested and ceased to be concerned. What happened during the 400 years? Well, it's very fascinating. The history of that 400 years is a very remarkable period in the history of the human race. God, as it were, says nothing. God didn't speak in this great and mighty manner. He dealt with individuals, of course, and he blessed them, and there were some amazing exploits, even among the children of Israel. But in the sense of God speaking, as he spoke in Eden, as he spoke at the flood, as he spoke at the Tower of Babel, as he spoke to Moses, as he spoke to Abram, as he spoke to Moses, as he spoke in the giving of the law, as he spoke in the tabernacle, as he spoke through his prophets, he stopped doing that. Silence for 400 years. But I say some very interesting and important things were happening at the same time. And to me, they are of the greatest possible importance in considering these matters. Do you know what happened in those 400 years? Well, you have the great story of Greece and the great story of Rome. That's what you get at that time when God is silent. The Greeks, the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great. And all that can be said about Greek culture and knowledge and wisdom and understanding and all that they developed with regard to views of life, the philosophers, the great philosophers, drawing their blueprints of a utopia, the message of man to man, to deliver men and to set man up again, all that came at that time. You know, there's not a word about it in the Bible. And I think, if I may say so with reverence, that that is the most remarkable bit of divine humor of all. It's not even mentioned. 
Paul just makes one fleeting reference to it when he says this, the world by wisdom knew not God. What a way to summarize the whole story of the mighty Greek philosophers and Greek culture. But that's it. That's all we've got. It all came at that time and then it was followed by all the astounding things that were done by the Romans and the Roman Empire. I mustn't stay with this this evening. But you know something about it, don't you? Those masters at government and law and planning. Well, it all happened during the silent 400 years. And again, you see, the Bible tells us nothing about it. Oh, it tells us, incidentally, that... Uh, the Romans had conquered Palestine. They had conquered almost every country at that time. It was the Pax Romana, so-called, with their mighty prowess. They would laid low every country. And there was a kind of peace. A peace because people simply couldn't stand up to the might and the power of the great Roman Empire. And, of course, in a sense, it had been a time of wonderful development in the, the respects to which I've referred, uh, namely the law and the government and the planning and the whole ordering of life. It all happened at that time. But the Bible says nothing about it. Why? Well, that's human history. And that history, you see, hasn't changed the problem of men at all. It just didn't touch it. It didn't, it didn't reduce immorality and vice. It didn't put an end to drunkenness and theft and robbery. It didn't improve the face of the world and of society. It was a complete failure. Oh, there are descriptions of the failure in the Bible. You'll get them in the first chapter of the epistle to the Romans. The second half of that first chapter, there it is. In all its foulness and its horror. The world which had had the incomparable advantage of Greece and Rome at their best and highest. Was guilty of foul perversions. And unmentionable sins and horrors. That's what happened during the 400 years. That's man's history you see. God, as it were, stood back and said, all right, you now believe that you really can put your world in order. Of course, you say, looking back to the time of uh, before the flood and uh, to the Tower of Babel, man was in his primitive stage then, and he hadn't developed. But now, of course, culture has flowered, and man's mind has developed. And the Romans and the Greeks, they felt they really could do it, and they set out to do it. And God just stood back and became silent and said nothing and just allowed them to see what they could do for 400 long years. And the result was, as I've just been describing to you, the problem of man remained exactly what it had always been ever since men fell in the Garden of Eden. In spite of these unsurpassable efforts on the part of men, the effort of the Greek and the Roman, man remained down in misery and wretchedness and sin and shame. And then the next step 
is the one that we are considering this evening. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, there you are, there's your Roman emperor, Pontius Pilate, one of his governors, and all the rest of them, all these little potentates appointed by Rome, some of them allowed uh, on the sufferance of Rome to have a certain amount of pomp and sway. Here they are, this horrible list of all of them, and what characters these men were. Well, while these people were in control, the word of God, which hadn't been here heard for 400 years, came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. The other history which seems to have stopped suddenly gets going again. And the most amazing things that have ever happened in the world began to take place. Well, my dear friends, that is, you know, the whole message of the Bible. And if we only understood what that means, there's no need for me to say another word. But we don't understand. That's the trouble. It's because we don't understand that the world is as it is. It's because we don't hear, because we are deaf, because we are blind. To this very thing that mankind is as it is this evening, and individuals are as they are. What's it mean? Well, let me try to summarize it for you. It's God's activity. The word of God came unto John. As it had come, you see, always in the Garden of Eden. As it had come to Abram in the in Ur of the Chaldees. When he least expected it and wasn't looking for anything. As it came for the disconsolate, dejected, perhaps even cynical Moses there as a shepherd in the land of Midian. The word of God came. It's always that. It's never man's activity that matters. It's God's activity. You see, we've all so gone astray because we've accepted the popular current philosophy that man is always searching for God. And that man is thirsting for God. And that man seeks and delves into the mysteries and tries to find out the truth. And at long last he shouts his Eureka. He's arrived. That's the exact opposite of the message of the Bible. The first great category in the Bible is what is called revelation. Revelation. And revelation is the exact opposite of discovery. To me, the greatest tragedy has been that so often during this last hundred years that men have used this noble, great term revelation and have described it as discovery. Revelation means that someone draws back a veil and shows you something. It isn't that you at last have arrived at something. Not at all. It's the exact opposite. It's God revealing, unfolding, unveiling. The word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias. And you remember his story, don't you? He is the last of the great prophets, in a sense. 
He's a prophet and says, Oh Lord, more than a prophet, he's the forerunner. And you remember that even his birth was a miracle. It was such a miracle that his own father didn't believe the angel when he told him it was going to happen. Go back and read chapters 1 and 2, as well as this third chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, and you'll find it all. Here's a man going into the temple to do his duty. They did it by rota. There were uh, uh, people drawn up, you remember, and put into certain groups, and they went in in turn. They worked on a rota system. And it happened to be the turn of this man, Zacharias. And he was now an old man, and his wife was old. And he went in just to do his duty. And suddenly he saw an angel who spoke to him and who addressed him. Discovery? Where's the discovery there? He wasn't looking for angels. He wasn't looking for anything. He was just going in to do his job. But suddenly an angel appears to him. That's the opposite of discovery. And he told him that his wife was going to bear a child and that they should call his name John. And he didn't believe it. He said it's impossible. And he was punished for his unbelief. He was rendered dumb. But it did happen, you see, it was a miracle. Well, it's God, you see, God prepared. God produced the child. There would never have been a John, but for the action of God, supernaturally, miraculously. And then having produced him, he sends him there into the wilderness. He filled him with his Holy Spirit from his birth, we are told. And here is a man who is conscious of a mission and a sense of call. He didn't understand it. But he was always unlike everybody else. He didn't want to live in the towns and do the thing to do and be in the smart set and enjoy the social round. Not at all. He went and lived in a wilderness And he knew that the body, even in a wilderness, can stand between a man and the knowledge of God. So he put on a camel hair shirt, and he didn't eat the ordinary food. He lived on locusts and wild honey. Why? Well, he's got a sense of mission. He feels the hand of God is upon him. He doesn't know what he's being prepared for, but he knows he's being prepared for something. He doesn't want the world. He sees it's opposed to God. He goes off on his own, and he lives there. A kind of anchorite, a hermit, an isolated person who segregated himself from all humanity and society because of this pressure of God upon him. And still he doesn't know, but there he is, he's being prepared, and he knows he's being prepared. Then suddenly, in the wilderness, the word of God comes to him. The other history is still going on. God is still revealing himself. The promise made in the Garden of Eden has not been forgotten. My dear friends, this is our only hope tonight. There is no other hope in this world. I know that many perhaps today are talking about the Christmas spirit. Probably they're appealing to the National Union of Teachers to show a little of the Christian spirit. Well, I'm glad you smile at it. It is to be smiled at. That's not the business of the Christian church nor any preacher of the gospel. I don't pretend to understand the rights and wrongs of these matters and it's not my province to criticize 
teachers or any other workers. They know the facts. I don't. I'm not called to do that. What I'm called to do is this. Is to say that man is incapable of applying what is called the Christmas spirit. Man in sin can't do it. The Christian spirit is not something to be applied. It is something that God puts in a man's soul. And if he doesn't, men will never exercise it. That's my message. Men, I say, will talk about the Christmas spirit and its application. They will tell everybody to pull together and to be brotherly and friendly. And then the new year will come and they'll say, now let's make 1956 a red letter year. They've said it every year throughout the centuries. But still we go on in the same old way. And we will go on. Because we are in sin. And because we can't do anything else. We are captives of the devil. We are wrong with him. And the only hope I say is that the word of God comes. And that is the message of Christmas. Very well, what does it, what does it do? Well, let me point out these things, these simple principles, which are very vital. Obviously, this word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness as a part of God's plan. You see, God has got his plan. I've told you that that's clear everywhere in the Old Testament. You read the Old Testament superficially and you'll say God's plan went all wrong. Look at the children of Israel. But I say, look at the other side. Look how God kept them going in spite of their being what they were. God's plan. Here it is again. God has got his plan. Nothing ever happens accidentally in this other history. Spiritual history is always according to plan. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. He saw the end from the beginning. All this redemption is in the mind of God since before the very foundation of the world. The plan of redemption. The scheme of salvation. Here it is. The point has arrived. God's plan. Have you seen God's plan running through the Bible? Haven't you seen it as you've looked at the whole history of the world? This line of God that runs parallel with the other very often and then breaks into it. And you notice the time element, don't you? Perfectly planned, perfectly arranged. God knew exactly when he was going to do this. God's uh, timetable doesn't vary according to men and what men does. Known unto God are all his ways. From before the foundation of the world, there is a moment, there is a time when the fullness of the times was come. That's it. God's exact time. Do you remember how God even told Abraham at the very beginning that the children of Israel would be down there in the captivity of Egypt for 430 years? It works to the second. It never goes wrong. It never fails. It came to John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. But, and this is the thing that I rejoice in above everything else as I generally read this chapter, 
The word of God, God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, in spite of the conditions prevailing. Now that is our blessed hope tonight. A man once said, reading these first two verses of this third chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, he, he'd put all these names on a bit of paper. And this is how he put it. I don't say this to amuse you, because it's a strictly accurate statement. He said... There has never been a greater collection of blackguards ever in the world than those men listed there. You can read their stories and you'll find that that is not an exaggeration. It's a collection of blackguards and they were in control. It was then that God sent his word to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Oh, my dear friend, the world is black and dark tonight. Things are going wrong. We all know that. The world is unhappy. It's in misery. It's in wretchedness. People are beginning to ask what's going to happen, what lies ahead. Here's the answer. God acts and he acts in spite of men and in spite of circumstances. Your hope is not based upon what's happening in the world. It must be based upon the God who is above the world and outside the flux of history and who does what he wants to do and carries out his sovereign purpose in spite of men and in spite of sin and in spite of hell. That's how it comes. And it's coming still. And you and I are privileged to listen to it tonight because it's still saying the same things. What's its message? It's this. That all God's purposes are culminating in this person. When I, says John the Baptist, well, I'll tell you, he replies, I'm in a sense nothing but a voice. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. There he is, he'd been preaching and baptizing the people. And he saw a little crowd gathering together and talking to one another. And they said, you know, they said, this must be the Christ. Did you notice how it's put here? And as all men, and as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ, the long-expected Messiah, or not. John heard them as they there were about to decide that he was, after all, the coming Messiah. John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize with water, but one mightier than I cometh. The latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose, he, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with it all points to him. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. He's come. Why did God call Abram? Well, it was out of Abram and his loins and the nation that he developed out of him that this Messiah was to come, born of the seed of David after the flesh, according to the flesh. Of the seed of Abram. He's come out of Israel as regards his human nature. That's why God has done all this. All this past history has been just leading up to this person. 
God's own Son come in the flesh to be the Redeemer of the world. The whole of the Old Testament points to Christ. It's looking to him, it's waiting for him. You notice some of the magnificent bursts of eloquence of some of the prophets. They've seen him. Abraham saw my day, says Christ himself, and rejoiced. And these other men have seen it. And they wax eloquent. They're lifted up into the heavens as they see him coming. Isaiah sees it all in that 40th chapter where he prophesies the coming of John the Baptist. And he says, let a way be prepared for him. The, the Son of God is coming. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And every eye shall see this salvation of God. Very well, he says, let's prepare a highway for him that is worthy of his royal personage. Let every valley be exalted. And let every hill and mountain be brought low. And let every rough place be made smooth and plain. Why? The Son of God is coming. The Savior of mankind is about to arrive. And John was given the word and was told to proclaim him and to say that he was only the friend of the bridegroom, the forerunner, the herald, the one who has the high privilege of running before his Lord and Master. He must increase, says John, and I must decrease. But that is the message, that is the word, that everything focuses in Christ. That God's answer to man's need and man's ill is his own Son, whom he has sent into the world to save, to seek and to save that which is lost. The Old Testament points to him. The New Testament reveals him, expounds him, shows him, explains him. The apostles preach about him. They preach Christ that he is the Son of God. They said, this is the message. There is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. They're all pointing back to him now. He's done everything. He's finished the work. The Savior of the world. Well, how does this help me, says someone? Oh, I can tell you, my friend, your troubles are all due to the fact, and mine and everybody else's, that we are not in the right relationship to God. We haven't listened to his word, and now we have lost the power of hearing. And to the serfs and the dupes of Satan, we can't save ourselves. We need to be saved. And God has sent his only son into the world to save us. Yes, our sin has got to be dealt with, and God has dealt with it. Sin is such a terrible thing that God can't pretend he hasn't seen it. It's got to be punished. And it has been punished. In the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He came. Why did he come? Well, according to the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, he came to taste death for every man. 
Why was the Son of God made a little lower than the angels when he became a man? For the suffering of death. The Lord Jesus Christ came not primarily to teach but to die. Not to give an example but to bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. Very well. That's happened. That's taken place. I point back to him. But the message of John the Baptist still applies, and it's this. Repent. Think again. Think again about your life in this world. Realize, I say, that it is what it is because of sin, and because you're outside God's blessing, because you're out of relationship with God. Think again. Think again about God, whom you so often felt is unfair to you. And you've said in your arrogance and ignorance, Ah, if God is a God of love, why does this happen to me and why is this allowed? Think again, repent, and change your mind. And look at Christ and see that God is such a God of love that he sent him into the world and even to the death of the cross for you and for your sin. Think again about God. And having thought, get on your knees and acknowledge what a worm you are. What a foul, pestilential creature you've been in thinking such unworthy thoughts about such a God. Repent, acknowledge, and confess your sins. Tell him that you see that you deserve nothing from him but punishment, that you have no claim upon his love, that you have nothing to plead at all, that you realize now how wrong you've been. Repent, confess your sins. Do it thoroughly, says John. Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We be Abraham's seed. Give up self-defense. Give up rationalizing your sins. Give up trying to cover your iniquity. Admit it, confess it all, and fall before him in utter abject surrender. And cast yourself upon his mercy. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message. The end of yourself the beginning of God's salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. And my friends, I would press it upon you. I would urge it upon you. Why? Well, because you noticed what John said about him. I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And with fire, he can give you a new nature. He can fill you with the Spirit of God. He can lift you up. I can't. I can simply wash you with water. He can do all that. He's the Messiah. But that isn't the whole truth. It's, it goes on to say this. Whose fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather the wheat into his garner. But the chaff he will burn with fire 
unquenchable. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is not only the Savior, he has also been made the judge. That's what John is saying. And if we do not repent and believe on him, we shall be judged by him. I have emphasized this evening again that God has got a plan, that God has got a time, that God has got a purpose, and everything he's promised has come to pass. Christmas is proof of that. The fullness of the times have come, and God sent forth his Son. And when the world crucified him, God allowed him to be buried in a grave, but only for the time that he'd indicated. On the morning of the third day, he raised him up again. And he's allowing these years to pass. But remember the plan of God is still there. And the end of that plan is the coming again of the Son of God into this world to judge the world. He is going to divide up between the wheat and the chaff. He's got a winnowing fan in his hand. He'll separate. Chaff and wheat. He'll gather the wheat into his garner, the chaff. He will burn with fire unquenchable. And what makes the difference, you see, is whether we have repented and believed or not. If you repent and believe, you become the wheat that he'll gather into his garner. But if you don't, you are the chaff that will be burned with unquenchable fire. Ah, my dear friend, the thought is alarming and terrifying. But let us simply remember this, that the God who made all those promises in the Old Testament and which were literally fulfilled, spoke to John the Baptist in the wilderness and not only told him that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Messiah, but that he is also appointed as the judge who will judge the world in righteousness at the last assize. If, therefore, you believe that God sent his only Son into this world on that first Christmas morning, If you want to be logical and consistent, you must also believe that he will come again, not as the babe of Bethlehem, but as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, riding on the clouds of heaven surrounded by the holy angels, and that he will judge the world finally and forever. In righteousness, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And that is what it was. Have you heard it? Have you believed it? Have you acted on it? Oh, be separated to Christ tonight and thereby escape the wrath which is certainly to come.